All right, I want to welcome you to Mount Olive Church. Uh, as the video you just saw, the bumper video, probably informed you, we're uh, talking about some um, a little bit more mature subject matter. So if you're brand new, it's like you kind of came for family day weekend, and you're like, oh, this is one of those kinds of churches. Um, we aren't very often, uh, but we do talk about things that God's Word talks about, and so we're going to talk about uh, this subject. Uh, if you've been uh, with us, last week we started this series entitled The Rule of Love in a World of Sex, Dating, and Singleness. Now, uh, Jesus once gave the rule of life that I believe is the rule of life that he uh, put in place for all of his followers. Uh, that he invites us to live under this rule, uh, all those who would say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And it all happened one day, there was a religious uh, ruler that came to Jesus and said, uh, kind of a trick question, out of all the commands in the you know, Jewish Torah, the Old Testament, which is the greatest? Which was a trick question because, you know, they're all commands of God and you can't say one's bigger or better than the other because they all came from God. But Jesus, in his masterful way, uh, actually summarizes the entire law, which is like 613 commandments, okay? So there's a lot of laws. Summarize them in this one law, what I call the rule of life for followers of Jesus. And the law is this, the rule was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And in my mind, the way it kind of played out then was the religious leaders like, all right. And he was about to leave and Jesus like, ah, don't go yet. And he goes on and says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the man probably was thinking, hey, I only asked for the greatest commandment. And Jesus said, yeah, the greatest commandment has a part A, part B. It's one command. And by making them, uh, saying it this way, he made them inseparable. Meaning you cannot love God and not love your fellow human. Uh, it's inseparable. They come as a package deal. So the rule of life is this, love God and love others. Love God and love people. So what would it look like if we were to live under the rule of life that God, Jesus gave us, this rule of love, what would it look like to apply the rule of love in this sphere, in the arenas of sex, dating, and single? That's singleness? That's what we're uh, discussing and discovering in this series. Now, if you were with us last week, quick recap. Uh, we looked at, uh, we live in a sexualized culture, a sex-crazed culture, and uh, we're not the first culture, just so you know, uh, that has been a very sexualized or sex-crazed culture. Uh, in fact, the New Testament was written in uh, a time when many of the cities in Rome were, I think, in my opinion, more sex, uh, sexualized than even our culture. Uh, but uh, a sex-crazed culture like ours will bring about different myths or lies that we tend to just accept and believe over time. And we looked at two of the lies that, uh, or myths that a sex-crazed culture will kind of get us to believe. But then we looked at last week, one lie that actually I think the church has brought forward as a response to the sex-crazed culture that we live in. And the lie or the myth that I think we as a church or Christians have kind of portrayed, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're gonna see us and be like, really? There's Christians that think that? Yes, okay? So we're just a strange bunch. But one of the myths that Christians have believed is that sex is bad. And I think a couple reasons, uh, my opinion, uh, why we have kind of come to believe this or think this or we've portrayed this. Uh, one thing, one reason is uh, we just don't talk about it. 
And when there's a subject that you're not allowed to talk about as a young person, you just know it must be bad, right? It's like taboo. It's like, we don't talk about that, right? It must be bad. And so we've kind of maybe unintentionally given this uh, idea that sex is bad because we just don't talk about it much in the church. And secondly, when we do talk about it, we almost always exclusively talk about sex as negative. That here's all the ways that, you know, sex has been used as power and abuse and, and, and used in the wrong way. And so we just kind of get this idea, sex must be bad. But as we looked at scripture last week, we saw that actually, according to uh, the way God has created the world, that God is good. So it's good, meaning sex is good. Because when God created the world, he kept saying over and over with everything he made, it is good. And sexuality, including sex as a physical part of our world, was part of what he made. And so it must be good. But then we saw within his boundaries. Now, there's a whole much more we can say about it, but you have to go to mountalvsc.com and listen to it because I'm not going to re-preach that message again. But we're going to move on and we're going to look at the two myths one of the two myths that are brought to us in a sexualized culture. Again, the two myths are this. The first one, that sex is everything. And our culture and a sexualized culture will just kind of give this impression that you can't live the good life if you're not having it. And if you're not having it, you're missing out, right? It's, it's like sex is everything. So go chase it down. It's a pleasure to be had. If you're not having it, you're missing out. The second lie is that sex is nothing. Now these sound contradictory they're not. This lie goes something like this. It's nothing. It's like going out for dinner and having a great steak with, you know, one person one day and the next day you're like, I'm going to go out for dinner with someone else and have a great steak with them. It just kind of comes and goes, no strings attached. You can just have sex with whoever you want. It doesn't matter because it's nothing. So it's everything. You better have it and have it with as many people as possible. And it's nothing. So you can because there's no consequence really. And what we see scripture teach is that both of these are actually incorrect. The one I want to look at today is the second one. Sex is nothing. And I think over the last uh, probably decade or just over a decade that the church in North America, Christianity, has taken on this view more strongly. And there is a, a younger generation growing up, and maybe that's you, where this idea of, you know, sexual purity and, and waiting until you're married to have sex, it's like, really? Isn't that so 1995? Like, wasn't that like, really? We have to, you know, can't we experiment and try some things? And there's a bit of a nonchalant kind of uh, 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 approach to this whole idea of sex within the younger generation. And maybe, you know, sexual, the, the purity culture was so strong that the pendulum just kind of swung. But I think we have to be careful. And as a younger generation, we have to be careful that we don't take what uh, our culture is just feeding us, that sex is nothing. In fact, what we're going to see the Apostle Paul write in a very sexualized culture. The Apostle Paul actually says that sex is something very significant. It is not everything but it is also not nothing. Sex is something, and it is something very, very significant. To see this, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Now, uh, I told you earlier that the cultures that the New Testament was written in uh, were more sexualized. A few years ago, um, my wife and I got to go to ancient Corinth, was, uh, meet some friends and toured, and uh, they have all kinds of like places of worship, and often they are on high places. They're kind of temples or they're places of, for pagan worship. And what came across very strongly in our tour of ancient Corinth is uh, in these temples, what was very commonly practiced was prostitution and sex. It was part of their faith, part of their religion. So you think we live in a sexualized culture. It was a sexualized, sexualized town. On top of that, Corinth was along this major trade route. And so it was like people came and went and you were anonymous when you came to Corinth. You could kind of just do whatever you wanted. No one would know, right? So this is, this is the city to which Paul writes to. And it seems that the Christians in the city were taking on the culture's idea that sex is nothing. Right? It's just nothing. Just have it with anyone, everyone. doesn't matter. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 12. He says, I have the right to do anything you say. So he's quoting them. And by quoting them, we don't know, is he quoting the Christians in the church or the culture of the day? Maybe both. But he says, you say, I have the right to do anything. But he says, not everything is beneficial. And then you say, in quotes again, I have the right to do anything. But Paul responds, but I will not be mastered by anything. You know, one of the themes as you read Paul's letters is this idea of freedom. And Paul constantly talks about this freedom we have in Christ and we're not under the law anymore. And maybe the church had kind of taken on this, this, this mantra of freedom, like we're not under the law, we're free to do whatever we want. And they're kind of pulling this card, right? Like we're just free, we have the right to do anything. And Paul's like, ah, ah even if that were true, even if you were under no law whatsoever, not everything's beneficial. Yeah, but we have the right to do anything. We're free in Christ. Yeah, but even if that were true, if you were under no law, I will not be mastered by anything. And here's the deal in a sexualized culture. If you give yourself uninhibited to your pleasure sexually, you have just been mastered by your own desire. And Paul says, uh-uh, the Christian life is a life where we will not be mastered. And so they had taken this, this, crazy, this crazy idea that we're just free to do whatever. And Paul's like, no, no, there's still moral and ethical laws that we're under. In fact, Jesus said, love the Lord your God, love God and love people. There is a rule that we live under. He goes on and says, you say, Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. This idea again, we can just eat, the physical doesn't matter, eat, it goes out into the sewer, one day we're gonna burn, the world's gonna burn, nothing matters, physical doesn't matter, do whatever you want, the physical body doesn't matter. And Paul says, oh, you have it so wrong. This is not a Christian worldview, and there are Christians that have taken this. And so he goes on and says, whoa, 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 but let me tell you, the body, physical body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and, uh, and the Lord for the body. See, there is a, a, a move in many cultures throughout history that the physical doesn't matter. Do whatever you want with the physical. In fact, even as a Christian, it's like, well, I'm just tied to God in my spirit, but what I do with my body doesn't matter. And that is not a Christian, biblical Christian worldview, according to Paul. According to Paul, the physical body matters a great deal. We are embodied people, embodied mind, spirit, soul, body, mind, and soul. 
And you can't separate one out from the other. This is why your sexuality, physical sexuality, matters a great deal to God. Because it is part of who we are. Our mind is part of who we are. Our spirit, it is all tied to one. You can't sparse them out and separate them. And so Paul says, no, no, no. You can't say the body, physical body doesn't matter because it matters a great deal. It was not meant for sexual immorality. Now the word sexual immorality that Paul uses is uh, directly, literally translated as the word fornication. As narrowly as you can define uh, fornication, it simply means uh, people having sex that aren't married with other people who aren't married, okay? Adultery is when you're married and have sex with someone not your partner. Uh, Fornication is having sex with someone who you're not married to and you're not a married person either. But it means so much more than that. The way Paul and the New Testament uses it is it's this this kind of blanket statement for for things that are immoral or uh, sexual, illicitly sexual, that's just out of the realm of proper. And so even decency is tied with this idea of immorality. Now, homosexually, tied to this idea of immorality, it's just this, this kind of blanket statement. In fact, the literal word in, in Greek is the word we get the word porn from, okay? It's pornea. And that's the word he uses. And so it's just like, the body was not meant for that, Paul's saying. The body, your physical body was meant for the Lord. And then he goes on and says, here's why the physical body matters so much. By his, that's God's power, God raised the Lord, that's Jesus. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. This is the the foundational piece of our Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. That we believe that Jesus came as the son of God, God in human flesh, took on our sin and the wrath of God against sin on himself for us and died on the cross in our place, but he did not stay dead. Jesus not only paid for our sin, he broke the power of sin, which is death. And he broke it when God raised him from the dead, proving that he was over sin. And this is the foundation of our faith. In fact, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul would go so far to say, if Christ has not been raised bodily, physically from the dead, then we as Christians, our faith is futile and we're to be pitied more than anyone else in the world. We've been fooled. There's no hope. This is the foundational piece of our faith. And now he brings the foundational piece of our faith and says it matters as it relates to what you do sexually. Because God raised Jesus from the dead physically, meaning we will one day be raised if we have put our faith in Jesus. We will be raised physically. Your physical body matters. And he goes on. Do you not know that your bodies, your physical bodies are members of Christ himself? I don't think we talk about this enough in the church. Think about that. Your physical body is a member of Jesus Christ himself. And he goes on and says, shall I then take the members of Christ, my body, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. That would be, that would be like taking Jesus and uniting Jesus with a prostitute. And if he's talking about their pagan worship, uniting Jesus to a pagan worship service. So he says, no, no, that, that can't happen. Do you not know? He goes again, like, do you know? He's just saying it in a way that kind of helps them know that they know. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body for it is said, and then he quotes what we talked about last week, Genesis 2, 24. The two will become one flesh. There is no sex with no strings attached. 
that there is a uniting, a one flesh union that happens in the act of sex. So he says, you, we, can't, we can't put that together. And he goes on. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, hey, your body matters, but you're not just a body. Your spirit matters, but you're not just a spirit, you're a body too. We are embodied people. And so he says, there is a unity in marriage, in the marriage union of sex, a oneness that happens, but there's even a greater unity that happens. It's the unity we have with Jesus by our spirit. Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So with all this in mind, we are embodied people. Our bodies are members of Christ. We are united with Christ in our spirit. Body, mind, and spirit. Paul says in summary, here's, here's what. In a sexualized culture, flee from sexual immorality. And when he says flee, it's this idea of run. It's like get away, do whatever you can to get away. But this is a present tense verb. Verb means something you do. Present tense means it's right now. <laughs> it means you're going to flee right now. And then now is four seconds later, you're going to flee again right now. And then now is four seconds later, you're going to flee again right now. It's not like, hey, I fled sexual morality last, last week and maybe next week I'll flee it again. No, no, when you live in a sexualized culture, it is coming at you all the time. And the Corinthians were living in a sexualized, a sex-crazed culture, kind of like our culture. It is something you constantly do. It's a posture you live in to flee sexual immorality because the moment you flee, it's there again and you're fleeing again. It is present tense verb. So he says, flee sexual immorality. And then he says, for all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And for many of us, when we see this, we get the idea, and it's an idea that I think is in the church as well, that sexual sin is a worse, the worst kind of sin. It's the greatest sin. It's the unpardonable sin. It's the sin you can't come back from. If you sin sexually, you're done. Does Paul say that it's a greater sin than all other sins? He doesn't say that, does he? What he says is that it's a unique sin. Because as it relates to sin, all sin is sin in the sense that it separates us from God. But all sin is different in the sense that it has different consequences that we walk through when we commit it. And Paul says, hey, hey you know what? If you're gonna sin, you know, slander and gossip, that's a sin against other people. And there's gonna be a certain set of consequences you're gonna have to walk to, it's a unique sin. But when you sin sexually, it's a unique sin as well. And there's a unique set of consequences you're gonna have to walk through. And one of the things he says is unique about it, it's a sin that you commit against your own body. You know, there's other sins we commit against our body. I think of drunkenness and, and, and gluttony. But those are unique even from sexual sin in the sense they come from outside the body to our body. Where sexual sin comes from within our body. It is a desire we have and it is against our own body as well. So he says it's a unique sin with its own unique consequences. And he continues, do you not know, there it is again, because they know this. Do you not know that your bodies, your physical bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? As you place your faith in Jesus, this is unbelievable, omnipotent, 
all-knowing, all-powerful God, the creator of the universe, chooses to live and dwell within you, within your physical body. That's unfathomable that God of the universe would make his home here. And that's exactly what Paul says has happened. So with all this in mind, he says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You don't have full authority of your body, your physical body. Because someone else bought you. God has bought you. Now, he does not go into what God did to pay for your your body, to pay for your life. But throughout the, the New Testament, he would speak of Jesus who came to pay for our sin. God who would send his one and only son to pay the, for, for the sin, uh, God's wrath against sin that was supposed to be towards us and our sin. Now, for some of you, you might say, well, I don't really know if I like this idea that I'm not my own. I want independence. I want to be the, the person. In, I want to, well, let me describe it this way. Imagine, and maybe for some of you, this is partly your story, but imagine growing up in a home where you were 110% neglected, every need, Every need you had was not met. Whether it was physical, emotional, mental, there is not one need that was met for you. You were extremely neglected. On top of that, you were abused in every way possible. Physically, emotionally, verbally, sexually. It was the worst upbringing imaginable. And in that environment, a family came and offered to adopt you but it would cost them an astronomical amount to take you in as their child. And in exchange for your old life, you could be adopted into this new family where every need you had would be met. And you would be showered with grace and love and mercy. And this is what your heavenly father has done for you, but even better. Because in the story, you were a victim. In the true story of life, we were sinners. We were enemies. We were not passive. We have not been passive. And we deserve to be neglected, but God chose to pay an astronomical amount to buy you. But just like in an adoption story where you say, I would join that family. The only caveat is you can join the family, but you have to take their name. And God was was willing to adopt you in. You have to take his name. You have to claim, I am not my own. He is mine. I've been bought with a price. You know, there's a lot of shame and guilt tied to this area of sex. And for some of us, our greatest area of regret, our greatest area of pain, our greatest area of if I could just go back and redo, if I could take a left turn instead of that right turn, if I could relive that night again. And there's all kinds of shame and pain tied to this area. And maybe for some of you right now, is, is you think, you defined yourself this way. 
you failed. In fact, you just feel like you are a failure. That you're, you're dirty. That you're a, you're a lost cause that cannot be recovered. That you're not clean. You're beyond redemption. And there's some things that you've done sexually that you don't know if God could ever forgive you. And you know you can't go back and undo it. And there are some things that have been lost. But I want to speak over you and your area of sexual sin today with this. God's word says this. You were bought at a price. With your sexual sin, with your sexual, I wish I could go back and redo, you were bought at a price. And here's the kicker. God did not buy you at a price before you messed up. And this is important because if God bought you before you messed up, maybe you would think, well, now that I messed up, I'm dirty, I'm unclean, I'm, I'm, beyond, I'm a lost cause, I can never be recovered. Maybe he won't want me anymore. But guess what? When God purchased you, he purchased you after you messed up. He purchased you after you were dirty, after you sinned. In fact, Romans chapter eight, uh, verse five, or chapter five, verse eight says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You are not beyond his grasp of grace. You are not a lost cause. And God can, he will clean you as you come to him and say, I confess my sin before you. He's already sent his son to clean you, to give you a new name and say, walk in my pathway from here on out. You are not beyond his grasp. So with this in mind, with new life in mind, how do we respond? Paul says, therefore, here's how I want you. From here on out, you can't change the past. God will forgive it. You may walk through some consequences, but you are clean. You have a brand new start with him. Here's how I want you to live. Therefore, honor. Honor God with your body. I know you've done some things with your body in the past, but from here on out, would you honor God with your body? Would you live under the rule of love? Just I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. See, to summarize this all up, because you are his, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are his, because you are his, and you are one with him. He lives in you. Your physical body is a member of Christ. Because of this reality, honor God with your body. Okay, 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 so I did some things in the past and I understand I'm forgiven, but I wanna step in. What would it look like practically, pastor? for me to step in to this, this sexualized culture we live in and do this. How would I honor God in the moment by moment days of temptation? Well, to see this, I'm gonna look at an Old Testament character I think is an example to us. And it's a story you know well. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph was uh, one of 12 brothers. He was the favorite son of his father and the least favorite brother of his brothers. That's how it always works. When there's a favorite, you're the favorite of some and the worst towards others, right? So his brothers at one point had an opportunity to kill him. They chose not to kill him. They chose to sell him to some traders who then sold him as a slave. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home. 
And the writer of Genesis in chapter 39 summarizes it this way, that now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard brought him or bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So here's Joseph, hundreds of miles of home, away from home. He will, by all accounts, he will never see anyone he knows ever again. He is completely anonymous. He is a nobody and he's now a slave, betrayed by his own family. This is his lot. But the writer of Genesis says, that, says this next. The Lord, though, was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. In essence, everything Joseph touched turned to gold. Now, not literally, figuratively speaking, everything he touched turned to gold. It's just like prosper, prosper, success, success, success. And, it, and it, you know, Potiphar, the Egyptian master was like, he's not a dumb guy. He's like, man, everything this slave of mine touches turns to gold. He is so successful. So he did what any smart master would do. He put him in charge of his entire house, right? Because if you're going to succeed in that little area, why wouldn't I get you to succeed for me in everything? So he puts him in charge of everything. And then the writer tells us this interesting fact in, in verse six says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Translation into English, he's ripped and he's drop-dead gorgeous, okay? So this is Joseph, this ripped, drop-dead gorgeous, extremely successful man. Now, I know some women in the world that would be quite attractive to a drop-dead gorgeous, successful, ripped man. Some of you are looking at your husbands. That's you right now, right? You're just like, yeah, that's you, husband. So make him feel good, okay? So that's exactly what happened. After a while, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. He is in a sexually charged moment. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for, for Joseph to say, of course I will. In fact, when we are in a sexual moment, a temp place of temptation sexually. We often give in to the temptation. And here's how the temptation often plays out. And I see this in Joseph, and this is often what's true of us when we fall to temptation as it relates to sexual sin. You know, for Joseph, he could have said, hey, you know what? I deserve it. It's been a hard knock life for me. My family betrays me. I'm living where nobody knows. I mean, things have just gone difficult, difficult, difficult. If anyone deserves a little bit of pleasure right now, it's me. And I imagine that has come to you. You know, a tough day at work and your boss doesn't treat you all that well. Your spouse is on your case constantly. You just feel like a failure. Your sports team loses again. The teacher treats you like trash and you failed your, your exam. And you go home and suddenly there's this little sense in you. You know, I deserve, it's been a hard day. I deserve, I deserve a little bit of fun. If anyone deserved it, didn't Joseph deserve it? Another, no one will know. I mean, literally for Joseph, no one would know. At least no one he knew would ever know. And let's be honest, Potiphar's wife wants to do this, so she's not telling Potiphar. It's just him and her. Nobody's going to know. There is complete anonymity. It's miles from home. And sometimes this temptation shows up for you, doesn't it? You're on a business trip. 
in the hotel. No one's going to know. Nobody knows me here. You're at home in your room as a 15-year-old. No one's going to know what you see on the screen, on your phone. No one's going to know. What's the big deal? Another one. It isn't hurting anyone. I mean, for Joseph, it wasn't going to hurt anyone, right? I mean, the only thing that could be hurtful is him saying no to Potiphar's wife because she would have hurt feelings. He should just go for it. How many times as temptation, sexual temptation comes, it's not hurting anyone. They want it. It's just a little bit of fantasy in my own mind, a little bit of lust. What's the big deal? And we would expect, knowing our own weakness, for the scripture to say this next. And so Joseph gave in to the easy opportunity to have. Of course he did. Everyone would. Everyone. Unless, of course, that someone said, you know, I'm going I'm to live my life under a rule. I'm going to live my life under the rule of love. And look what jo- Joseph does instead. But he refused. <laughs> stupid, stupid Joseph. Why would you refuse that? He refused because he had, he lived under a rule. Look what he says next. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. I am over everything. Exactly. Why wouldn't you take advantage of this? Because even when you are over everything, when you are ruled by love, you're still under what? Love. And so he uses the word entrusted. Do you know what entrusted means? Trust is all about relationship. He could not live under the rule of love and break the trust he had with his master. Didn't matter how in charge he was. In fact, he goes on and says, no one is greater in this house than I am, but there is a law that's greater than me. It's the law of love. And so he says, My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. See how he's playing out the rule of love? I've been called to love others. I have to love my master under God. I could not do that to him. And then look what he says next. This is astounding, astounding, astounding. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Because you cannot honor God and sin against your brother or sister. That is not how the rule of love, this is the rule of love. The rule of love says this, others above myself, I will put others above me and God is over all. Others will be above me, I will count them as more valuable, I will rank them as higher than me. That is what the rule of love, loving others looks like. But God is over all and though She spoke to Joseph day after day. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He was living in a sexually charged environment like a sexualized culture. (laughs) There was opportunity, opportunity every which way he looked. But he says he refused or even, and this is so interesting, he refused to even be with her. And this is an important wisdom principle. Was it sin for him to be in the same room as Potiphar's wife? Not at all. But here's what wise living says. 
Wise living includes putting up boundaries, putting up guardrails to keep oneself from falling off the edge. And Joseph, though it was not sin for him to be in the same room as her, put up a guardrail because that's what wise living does. And for some of you in the room, you need to incorporate some wise living in your life. Is it sin to have your cell phone in your bedroom at night? No, but it may be unwise. If you're like, I can't beat this pornography thing and yet you you struggle at night in your bedroom with your phone, maybe your phone needs to stay in the kitchen counter. It's just a guardrail, right? That's not a rule for everyone. These guardrails are not rules for everyone. They're rules for self. Maybe for you, there is a relationship right now, a friendship that for you, you cannot have. Not because it's wrong to have a friendship with anyone in the world, but with that particular person right now and the struggle you've had, you cannot be in a friendship with that person. It's a guardrail. Maybe for you right now, the television in your room, maybe there's a friend you need to stay away from for a season as a guardrail because it's just wise living. And Joseph sets up a guardrail. Now, I'm not sure if he did it because he's like, I'm struggling. Or maybe he did it to protect her from her, right? Because you have to remember, he's like drop dead gorgeous, he's ripped and he's really successful and she's only human. So maybe he's like, we got to set some guardrails for you. I don't know. But one day, even with guardrails in place, He went into the house to attend his duties and none of the household servants was inside and she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. Sometimes no matter how many guardrails we put in place, temptation continues to break through and the pop-up comes or whatever happens. And at that moment, we have a decision to make. Was it sin for him to have her grab him? and say, come to bed with me? No. Is it sin when a pop-up shows up on your screen? No. What are you going to do in response? Are you going to continue to give in and lust, give in to the relationship and have sex? Are you going to continue or are you going to run? And Joseph gives us a picture of how we live honoring God with our body in a sexualized environment. He ran, and here's the interesting thing. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was around when the New Testament writers, Paul was writing his letters in Greek. In the Greek translation from Hebrew to Greek of the Septuagint, the word ran in the story of Joseph is the exact same Greek word. Over a thousand years later, the apostle Paul used when writing to the church in Corinth, flee. Flee from sexual immorality and all the Christians reading this in Greek and they read their Old Testament in Greek. Right away they're like, whoa, that's like the same word used of Joseph. And Paul undoubtedly was like, yes, that's what it looks like. You live in a sexualized culture and there's so much temptation. Here's what it looks like. It is present tense, always on the go. I'm ready to flee because you never know when temptation is going to break through. Flee sexual immorality. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her uh, in his heart. Some of you may be thinking, whoa, 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 pastor. Joseph fled an actual sexual moment 
Paul tells the Corinthians to not engage in prostitution, which is actually sex, but you're just talking about lust and pornography and online and, and, and fantasy in your brain. What do you, you took it too far, but here's my point. I don't think I took it too far. Because Paul says, you cannot unite with a prostitute, but then he does not say, so flee the prostitute. He says, flee sexual immorality. Because Jesus had already spoken the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said to look lustfully at a woman and vice versa, to look lustfully at a man as a woman, is the exact same thing as already committing sex. It's just a heart issue. So flee, run from sexual immorality. And as you do, honor, honor God with your bodies because you are one with him and you are his. Would you honor God with your body? What would it look like for you from here on out? Say, I honor God. I'm choosing the pathway of Joseph. Sex is not everything and sex is not nothing. It is something significant. And I'm gonna choose to walk in his boundaries, which undoubtedly is for my good, though right now it just seems really hard. I will honor God with my body. Now, for some of you, specifically those who have already made mistakes, or maybe right now you are living in the middle of sexual sin. For you, you may say, well, what's my step? And here's, I just wanna give you kind of the first step. It's the most difficult step, it's always the first step. Here's the first step. If you are caught in, entangled in sexual sin, it's this. I think you need to confess you need to confess your sin. And it's the first step and it may be the most difficult thing you ever do in your life. But you need to confess your sin. And I don't mean confess your sin to God only. You need to confess your sin to God, but what I mean is you need to confess your sin to another human being. And as I said, this may be the most difficult thing you ever do in your life because there's something about sexual sin. It is so private and it is so shame-filled for so many of us that we can't imagine ever anyone ever knowing. But I wanna encourage you. You need to confess your sin to another human being because there is a freedom that I don't think you will experience nor will you have from that sexual sin if you try to beat it on your own. Here's what James says. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There is something significant that happens within us. When we confess our sin to another human being, we confess it to God, yes, but when we confess it to another human being and receive the forgiveness God has already given us through the eyes of a physical person that sets us free in a way that trying to do it on our own will not. And here's the other thing, you can't beat this by yourself. Someone needs to know so that they can walk with you hand in hand, brother to brother, sister to sister. So I wanna encourage you, if nobody knows, you need to tell someone and you need to confess that sin. If you're a teenager living at home, I wanna encourage you, if you have God-filled parents, you need to tell your parents. It might be the hardest thing you ever do, but you need to let your parents know, I have struggled and I have sinned in this way. And if you're older, find someone of the same gender as you and just a God-filled, God-loving person and confess that to them. 
And then allow them to step into your life and say, we're gonna, by God's strength, we're gonna walk into freedom. And here's the deal. If it took you 15 years to step into an addiction, 15 years to step into sexual sin, you won't be freed in 15 minutes, okay? There is a journey ahead of you of walking into freedom, of walking into what it looks like to honor God with your body. But it's so, so worth it. Now I wanna say to those of you parents in the room, grandparents, um, those of you that love Jesus with all your heart, if someone comes to you this week or in the next few weeks or in the next few years confessing sin, do not respond, please do not respond with how what they did was wrong. Don't judge them, don't condemn them, don't tell them all the ways that they shouldn't have done it. If they're confessing the sin to you, they already know. What I wanna invite you to do is to do what your heavenly father does for you every time you confess your sin to him. And I want you to look in the eyes of that person who's confessed to you and offer forgiveness and mercy and grace, because every time I sin, I go to a heavenly father who offers me mercy and forgiveness and grace. And you have the opportunity to be like your father in heaven to someone else. Yes, you're gonna journey with them. Okay, how from here on out do we not fall back into? How do we honor God with our eyes and our minds and our bodies? But in that moment, offer and extend grace. Because you're his, think about that. And he is in you. Honor God. Make a covenant with your eyes, with your hands, with your body. I will not look lustfully. I will not pursue sexual fulfillment outside of his boundaries. Let me pray with you, Father, I imagine right now as we stand and sit in this room in your presence, that this message has landed differently with each of us. For some of us, this is a message of encouragement. Yes, keep going. For some of us, it's a message of of do not grow weary in well-doing. For some of us, it's a message of warning. We're young and there's some things we wanna explore and it's like, oh, I, I don't wanna take that turn. Father, we need to hear your voice. Father, for some of us, it's a message of conviction. Father, I I pray that however this lands on each of us, would you give us soft hearts to hear your voice? And we know, for many of us, we know what we need to do stepping forward. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage, the courage, to step in. And if that first step is telling someone that we've never told anyone, Father, give us courage to take that step. And I know there's other steps and we have other things in our, in our church and in our county that can be of help. But Father, I pray that you help us take that first step. And thank you for the freedom and the forgiveness you offer and that we, under your name, with a new name, as your children get to walk into a new life, in your ways. We thank you for this. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. 
If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.